Well, welcome, Grace. Good morning. Hey, it's so good to see you. I have been counting down the days uh, until I get to be with you. I, uh, you guys need to know you've got fantastic leaders. You've got some fantastic people at this church. Yeah, you can applaud for them. As Karen said, I have had just the joy of serving Pastor Dan and Karen and Shane for about the last year or so and, and getting to talk with Pastor Dan and hear the story of grace uh, and hear the DNA of this place. Uh, getting to walk with Karen as she leads in such steadfast ways to keep this place on the vision, on mission, on point. Uh, getting to serve uh, Shane as he grows as a preacher and as he grows as a, as a leader and as a pastor. You've got incredible leaders. And I just want to challenge you, uh, if you haven't done it lately, if you haven't encouraged them lately, don't let the sun go down today until you encourage them, Okay. Just tell them thank you, shoot them an email, a text, whatever it is, just tell them thank you, I appreciate you. They are working so hard to serve this place and to serve this community, and it's awesome. It's awesome. When they asked me, hey, would you come? I couldn't say yes fast enough. You can applaud for them, go ahead. Yeah. And so before I dive into our talk this morning, I have two pieces of encouragement that I would love to give you if you're okay. Number one, first piece of encouragement, you need to know that, that grace this is a unique church. This is a special church. Your vision for this place to be a home for people, for it to be a grace first, like you don't have to be perfect to be a part of this uh, thing, like that vision is unique. And your vision to help your city, to help your community, and the way that you put your actions, your feet behind your words, and you put your resources behind your words, this is special. I don't see this everywhere. This is not normal. In fact, I tell churches all over the country about you guys. I do. I, I brag on you guys often. And so way to go. Keep it up. Number one piece of encouragement, know that this is a special church. Number two piece of, enc of encouragement I want to give you is to remember that that grace is God's church. That this church is not about any individual. It's not about any man or any woman. This is God's church. This is the bride of Christ. And if you've ever wondered, what does the future of grace look like? It is not ambiguous. It is not foggy. God knows exactly what he is doing with this church. And he is building a resilience in you. He is building the character in you that you need to take grace into the future. And so if you're sitting in your seat wondering like, is this the time for me to like kind of sit back and to see what's gonna happen? No, <laughs> this is the time to lean in. Maybe, maybe you needed to stop serving during the pandemic and that's okay. And you're wondering, well, does Grace need me to serve now? The answer is yes. Dive in, dive in, get out of the stands and onto the field, dive in, support this church financially, show up, celebrate, invite. And I tell you all that to say the best days of Grace are in the future. The best days are ahead because this is the bride of Christ and God is not done here. Amen? Amen. 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 All right. You should applaud. This is a great place. It's okay. All right. A little bit about me. So as Karen said, my name is Matt. I'm originally from Texas. In 2007, uh, we moved to Chicago. So you might hear a y'all every now and then. It's okay. Just go with it. That's normal. Any other Texans out here? Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, so I've, I've been married to Krista for 21 years. Uh, you would love her way more than me. You should pray for her because she has to be married to me. Uh, we've got three boys, 17, 14, and 11. Yep, she's got this shirt that says, I run a frat house. And 
I think it's true. So they, they are constantly either like, eating, wrestling, or fighting, and sometimes all three at the same time. Uh, the smells that come from their rooms can only be described as exquisite. I mean, it's... <laughs> so I grew up in Texas, and I'd say that I grew up in a... It was a kind of Christian family. Uh, like, we came to church on Christmas and Easter, and if there was nothing else going on that Sunday, you know, there wasn't a big game or something like that, we would have said we were Christians, but we weren't serious about our faith. And I just tell you that to say, if, if maybe this is your first time at church ever, your first time at Grace ever, or maybe it's your first time in a long time, or maybe you're just a kind of Christian family, and this just so happened to be the weekend in between Mother's Day and camping on Memorial Day weekend that you were free, just know that you're welcome here. This is a safe place to explore spirituality, to explore God and faith. So as I was growing up, when I was 13, I had something that for me was pretty catastrophic happen in my life at 13. And I don't want to go into details about it because I think it's going to derail our talk today. But just let it be enough to say that it, it shattered my view of, of God and of my family and, and of my, my friendships. And on the outside, I, I was, looked like I was put together. I mean, I still went to school, I got good grades, I wasn't in trouble, like all that kind of stuff. But on the inside, man, I was lost. I didn't know which way was up, I didn't know who to believe. I was searching to be found any way that I could, I was lost. And that feeling of being lost is a universal human experience. I, I don't mean like um, you're in a new city and the GPS won't connect, not that kind of lost. That's the lost with the lowercase l, lost. I mean lost with an uppercase l, lost. That profound kind of lost where you, you think to yourself, is this really all life is? Is this what life is about? I mean, is life just about making money and amassing one experience after another experience and eventually I'm gonna retire and then I'm gonna die? Like, is this all that there is? Is it just about feeling good, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die? Is that all that this is? That's where I was, that profound kind of loss. This is universal. At some point, you've either felt this, or you feel it now, or you will feel this. Everybody at some point feels profoundly lost. And for me, that was me. And I was, I was looking to be found anywhere that I could. I mean, it was, it was either with substances or relationships with girls or, or whatever. I was looking to be found, and I just, I was lost, man. I was lost, and a friend of mine, I'll, I'll never forget him, uh, Kevin Berman, invited me to go to a church camp, and I was like, no. <laughs> Heck no. <laughs> like, why would I want to go to a church camp? And he's like, well, it's on the beach, number one, and number two, that girl's going, and I had a crush on that girl, and I was like, What's the worst thing that could happen to me? <laughs> so I went to the camp and God like totally got a hold of my heart and rearranged my life. And I've never been the same since, but, but you need to know this, the memory of what it's like to be profoundly lost has never left me. I still remember what that was like. Hey guys, side note, no matter how long you have been found, don't forget what it felt like to be lost. Don't forget what it felt like to be lost because it's universal, it's normal. At some point, all of us will feel lost. So here's the question I have for us today. If that's a universal feeling, at some point we're gonna feel profoundly lost, how does God feel about us when we feel lost? How does God feel about us 
when we feel lost. A good friend of mine, uh, Tony, I invited him to church many years ago. It reminds me of this. Um, you need to know Tony. Like I said, I live in Chicago. Tony's a Chicago firefighter, shaved head, super in shape, buff. Like he's the kind of dude who's into motorcycles and pool. You know what I mean? Like you could, you could picture Tony. And Tony and I would, would get together for wings and beverages. Uh, and over wings and beverages, we would just talk about life. And he looked like, like he had everything together. It looked like everything was fine. But the more I got to know Tony, the more it became clear that on the inside, Tony was profoundly lost profoundly lost, that, that this isn't working for me anymore. Me running away from the anxiety that I feel in my past and just trying to cover it up with experiences, this isn't working for me anymore. And I was like, Tony, dude, you should come with me to church. He played uh, the bass, I played the guitar, we were having fun. I'm like, come to church, come check out the music. I think you'll think it's cool. He's like, yeah, I don't know. That's not my scene. And I was like, no. He goes, okay, tell you what, do you have one of those places where like right when you walk in the door, there's a bunch of couches and there's a TV that like shows what's happening in that, in the big room? Like, yeah, you can get a cup of coffee while you're there. He's like, okay, I'll come and sit there. He goes, but I'm not going into the magic room with you. <laughs> the magic room. I was like, seriously, the magic room? He goes, yeah, like the room where God is. That's the magic room. I'm not going to go into the magic room where God is because if I walk in there with like my history and my past, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get struck by lightning and it might hit you too just because you're the one who brought me. And it was one of those like, it was like an 80-20 joke, you know, where he's like 80% joking, but he's 20% serious. It was one of those jokes. And I learned something. We laughed together and eventually Tony came and he played in the band with us and all that stuff. And it was amazing what God did in his life. But Tony taught me something in, in that moment. Tony taught me what most people think God feels about us when we're lost. This is what most people think God feels about us when we're lost. Most people think God doesn't want lost people around. That God hangs out here in the magic room. And if you're not holy, he doesn't want you in this magic room. He doesn't want lost ones in this magic room. And, and that God actually likes found people, people who've got their stuff together more than God likes lost people. Like God wants the kind of people who, who have, have got a, a job that doesn't ask them to make moral compromises. God likes people better if, they, if they're living with somebody who is their wife and it's their same wife for their whole life. God likes people better who have the same kids that are their kids in the house for the whole time. Those are the kinds of people God, God doesn't like people with tattoos in the past. God wants people who are polished and shiny and put together. Most people think God doesn't want lost people around and that God likes found people more than God likes lost people. Tony taught me, this is what Tony thought, that, that most people think that the first thing God feels about people who might be lost is judgment, disappointment, and criticism. In Tony's mind, Tony's like, you know what? When God thinks about me, he thinks judgment and shame. I'm ashamed of you, Tony. And I'm judging you. That's what, that, that's what Tony thought was God's heart toward him. And you know what? 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked the earth, believe it or not, that was the same prevailing belief at that time. That's still what most people think God thought about lost people. And Jesus addresses it head on. So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. If you brought your Bibles, you can open up to Luke 15. If you have it on your phone, go to the app. If you don't have either of those, it's going to be on the screens. You're, you're going to be all good. Uh, it's on page 1768 in my Bible. I'm here to help. I'm just, <laughs> let's dive right in it, okay? Luke 15 verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Jesus. 
But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So let me set the scene of what's going on here. You've got a crowd that is gathering to hear Jesus teach. And it's clear that there are two groups of people in this crowd. Over here, you've got group number one. And this is who the gospel says are the tax collectors and the sinners. I don't really like the word sinners. It makes me super uncomfortable. It feels judgy, all that stuff. So the New Testament was written in Greek, right? So I looked at the, the Greek and said, well, what's the direct translation of the word sinners? Maybe there's another word I can use. You know what the direct translation is? People of bad character. Yeah, I don't like it any better. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't help me. Let me tell you, this is the picture of who these people are. These people are the outsiders. They're the people who don't know God. They're the people whose lives are an absolute mess, but they're hungry for hope. And they've been hearing about this guy, Jesus, and so they're curious. Maybe he has something for me. That's group number one. And then group number two is over here, and it's the Pharisees. Now, you might be like, Matt, if, if you've been in church before, you know, like, the Pharisees are kind of the bad guys. Mm. The Pharisees are the super religious people. The Pharisees are the people who take this really, really seriously. Like, they would memorize huge chunks of the Hebrew Bible. They really wanted badly to be able to follow God. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. The Pharisees got something backwards. The Pharisees thought following God meant an academic study of this and behavior modification so that you just do the right actions. For the Pharisees, knowing God was all about your brain and your activities. They missed God because they turned following God into an intellectual pursuit instead of a relational pursuit. Because following God really means not just your mind and your actions, it means a relationship with God. So here are these Pharisees, and they're over here, and they're crowding, they're hearing uh, Jesus teach, and they're like, why is Jesus hanging out with those people? Did Jesus not get the memo? Doesn't he know that God doesn't like those people? God likes us more than he likes them. Doesn't Jesus know that God's default emotion towards those people is judgment, criticism, and shame, that he is disappointed in those people? Doesn't Jesus know that? What's wrong with this guy? And Jesus hears that, and immediately he answers the question of why he's hanging out with the people of bad character. And he does it with three parables, back to back to back. So let's dive into the first parable. This is verse 3. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, and he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home and then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Here's the story. You got a shepherd and he's got 100 sheep. And one of those sheep wanders away. What's interesting, we don't know why the sheep chose to wander off. The sheep may have just been eating and got distracted and just kept following the patch of grass and all of a sudden, well, where's everybody else? Maybe the sheep thought that grass looks more delicious than this grass, I'm gonna go after it. Maybe the sheep saw a predator and he ran away because he was, sh he was scared. 
Maybe two or three of the other sheep didn't like him and they ganged up and bullied him. I don't know. Maybe one of the sheep stole his girlfriend. Maybe he had the wrong color fur. Maybe he was just stupid. Maybe he just made bad decisions. Maybe he just followed bad advice. We have no idea why the sheep chose to wander off. What we do know is the sheep chose to wander off and the shepherd doesn't care why. Why the sheep wandered off is totally irrelevant. That's not what breaks the shepherd's heart. It's the fact that the sheep is lost that breaks the shepherd's heart. And because the sheep is lost in the wilderness, in a dangerous, messy place with predators, the shepherd says, I've got to go find my sheep. So the shepherd leaves the 99, takes a risk, and goes and finds the sheep. And when he finds the sheep, he doesn't criticize the sheep. He doesn't shame the sheep. He doesn't say, oh, sheep, you stupid sheep. You should have trusted me that I was going to bring you the best food. Sheep, you shouldn't have been afraid. You should have known that I'm the one who can protect you. And you should have asked me about the bullies and you shouldn't have been so concerned. He doesn't shoot all over the sheep. You gotta be careful, right? I don't worry, I've practiced that one. We're okay. He doesn't shoot on the sheep. Someone just got it. (laughs) It's going to come. I know it's fast. It's going to come. It's going to come. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't criticize the sheep. He doesn't say, sheep, you walk home and clean yourself up and think about what you've done. No, he sees the sheep and his first emotion is compassion and tenderness. Here's that sheep who's still in the wilderness, still in a dangerous place, still in the middle of the mess. But as soon as that shepherd shows up, the sheep goes from being lost to being found. Even though he's still in the mess, he's now found in the mess. Do you see that? And the shepherd feels compassion for the sheep and he feels joy. Did you catch that in the, in the, in the, in the scripture? He feels joy. And so he bends down and he carefully picks up the sheep. Yeah, the sheep was the one who walked out there, but the sheep didn't have to walk back. The shepherd picks the sheep up and he carries the sheep tenderly back to the flock. Guys, to to be lost and to have nobody looking for you is terrifying. Jesus is saying to the one, to the one who wandered off, maybe it's bad decision, bad advice, maybe it was foolishness, whatever reason why, to the one who's wandered off, Jesus is saying, there's someone looking for you. If you can hear my voice in this room or maybe online, there is someone looking for you. Jesus has organized a rescue party for you because you are worth finding. You are worth looking for. Don't give up. And Jesus is speaking to us, to the found, to the 99. He's saying to us that the lost ones are worth taking a risk to go find. Guys, you have to risk something to find someone lost. I'll say that again. You have to risk something to find someone lost. Can I ask you, who is the lost one in your life? Who is the one that you're willing to take risks to find? And when you see the one who is lost, are you more bothered by their behavior or by the fact that they're lost? What breaks your heart? Are you willing to carry them back home without judging them, without shooting them, but just carry them back home and allowing God to transform their, lo- uh, their life? Guys, your job isn't to fix things. Your job is to join a rescue party. That's what your job is. 
Jesus immediately goes into the second parable. Verse 8, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now you hear this and you're like, I think something's lost in translation because it sounds like an old lady dropped a quarter and is making a big deal of it. So I did some digging and people way smarter than me think that Jesus is referring to this ancient Near East culture, uh, that this tradition they have of a dowry where as a woman would, uh, was a young lady would be transitioning uh, from a girl into a young lady, the family would save up money and they would buy her these 10 silver coins that they would set in a necklace or in a headdress for her to be able to take into her, into her marriage. It was this family heirloom thing. Uh, think about it this way. Um, almost exactly three years ago to the date, my uh, wife and I woke up on a Saturday morning and she says, all right, babe, I've got this class at the gym. I'm gonna go work out. And then uh, if you could feed the kids breakfast afterwards, we can split up the whole baseball, soccer duties, all that stuff. Sure, go for it. So I'm upstairs, I'm cooking breakfast for the kids, I'm having fun, I hear her go to the class, come home, she's showering, getting cha uh, changed and dressed, and I hear this yelp. And she like sprints up the stairs, runs into the kitchen, she's just like this. And I'm like, your highness? I mean, I don't know. And she goes, no, look at it. And this is, this is what I saw. I know. And so in that moment, I'm thinking to myself on the inside, I don't want to buy another dumb diamond. <laughs> but at least I'm not 21 years old and broke and having to like scrape every penny together I have to buy that thing. We're going to be okay. So I said, you don't know this about me, but I'm like, I'm super relationally intelligent. Like I'm really good in a marriage. Uh, I'm validating. I reflect well. Like, I'm really good at all that. So, husbands, you're probably going to want to write this down. Because uh, I said something so genius in the moment. Uh, I said, oh, honey, it's okay. We can buy you another silly rock. <laughs> Pray for my wife. <laughs> Ladies, help me out. Did my wife want another diamond? You say yes. No, <laughs> no. she wanted that diamond. She wanted the diamond that I scraped every penny that I owned when I was 21 years old, that on July 15th, 2000, I put on her finger and covenanted that I would, I would love her and serve her until I died or she died. She wanted that diamond because that diamond was irreplaceable treasure. You could not put a value of that diamond with dollars. That diamond meant everything to her. And so what did she do? She, she like hopped in the car, drove back to the gym, ran into the same class where she just was, the same instructor, different class. And she goes to the instructor, I lost my diamond. The instructor's like, oh my goodness. So she gets on her Britney Spears mic, you know, and she's like, everybody, this is Krista. Krista just lost her diamond. They're all freak out. They all get on their hands and knees. In the gym, gross. Like, in, they're looking hands and knees. Can we find this diamond? And they don't find it. And so she comes home and she's just dejected and she's getting text messages from friends. You should check here, look here, look here. She's like taking the house apart. We, the next day we go to church, come home. She's like taking the sink apart and looking in the dryer and all the places. And I'm getting ready for dinner. Uh, she's downstairs, she's changing and she's putting on a fresh pair of socks and she opens up the socks and I heard another yelp. And this was what was in her hand. Come on, right? 
here's the moral of the story. You should always tie your socks. No, I'm just... <laughs> what had happened was that as she was folding her socks like this the day before, that sock fabric grabbed the diamond and held it in there until she opened it up. And you know what she did? She put it in a baggie and like in another baggie and another baggie to like keep it safe. And she drove to the same gym, to the same room, same instructor, third different class. And she's like, I found it, I found it, I found it. And the instructor's like, are you kidding me, Britney Spears, Mike? Everybody, this is Krista. She lost her diamond and now she's found it. She lost the treasure. And these strangers are like, yeah, and they're celebrating. And they're like, women, you're amazing. Because they're like empathizing with her and they're crying. I'm like, you don't even know each other. How are you crying right now? But they're crying because this was irreplaceable treasure that was lost and now is found. Hey, okay, now let's get serious. This story is not about an old lady dropping a quarter and making a big deal of it. This story is is about the fact that if you are a lost one, you are irreplaceable treasure. That that kind of intensity that my wife felt to find that diamond, that's the kind of intensity that God has for you. When he thinks about you, he doesn't think about criticism and shame and disappointment. He thinks about you with love that you have a value that is far beyond anything we can imagine. To the one, you are an irreplaceable treasure to God. And to the 99, to the found, Jesus is teaching us that you have never locked eyes with somebody who is not an irreplaceable treasure. An irreplaceable treasure. Can I ask you, who's the lost one in your life? Who is the one that is worth getting on your knees to find? Who is the one that's worth getting passionate and desperate to find? And the third parable. And because of time, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you the story of this one rather than read it out of the scriptures. You've heard it before. You've got a dad who's fairly wealthy and he's got two sons. And the younger son says, dad, you know that money that I get when you die? I kind of want it now. And it's offensive because essentially he's saying, dad, your money is more important to me than you are. I'd rather you just die already. Can you just, can you just die already? And it's, it's offensive now, but it was even more offensive then because back then you can't like sell your 401k quietly and just take a penny, the, the penalty and give the money away. Back then it's like, you got to find a buyer for the land and a buyer for the livestock. Everybody knows about this is the point. This is public shame for that father. And he does it. Quick side note, sometimes God gives us what we ask for, even when he knows it's going to end in pain, because sometimes he knows we have to learn it for ourselves. So the father does it. The father does it. The son takes the money. He goes to a distant country and in a short period of time spends all of that inheritance on wine and women, on booze and prostitutes. Now you're like, yeah, he's just having a fun, rebellious kid. Boys will be boys, burning man, whatever. I don't think this is that. For him to spend this much money on substances and prostitutes in that period of time, that sounds like an addict to me. That sounds like somebody who has a problem. And he quickly, he hits rock bottom. And he's like sold everything. He has nothing left to sell but himself. And so he sells himself into slavery to be an indentured servant. And his job is to herd pigs. And he is starving. He doesn't have a change of clothes. And he looks at that food that the pigs eat. And he's like, I actually think I might eat that. Imagine how hungry you would have to be to to think dog food looks good. And he has this moment of clarity. And he's like, what am I doing? 
If I'm gonna have to be a, an indentured servant, I, I might as well work for my dad because at least they get to eat food. And so from this distant country, remember he's, he's left, he starts walking home. He can't buy a bus ticket, he's walking on the side of the road. And he's got no money, so he doesn't have a shower, he doesn't have a change of clothes, he stinks, he's an absolute wreck. This is an addict trying to get clean, guys. He's a wreck, and he's walking home. And you know what the father is doing? The father is sitting at home, <laughs> watching the horizon, wondering maybe today's the day my boy's gonna come home. And he sees a figure approaching in the distance, and he thinks, I think that might be the, the walk of my son. And the father doesn't wait for the son to walk up to the house. And what the father does, the father runs after the son. Guys, when was the last time that you ran and you weren't exercising? Adults don't run. We don't. It's undignified. We, we don't run unless we're exercising. Kids run. Adults don't run. And this, this, was a, this was a father of a son who was old enough to go to a distant country. He was an older man. And he ran to the son. He ran to the lost one. And he got there and the son starts the speech that he had been preparing. He says like, dad, I'm a person of bad character. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. I know I'm not that. Would you at least make me your servant so I can eat? And he's in the middle of this speech to his dad and his dad cuts him off. And he says, stop. You don't have clothes. Bring clothes from my house. We're gonna clothe you with the goodness of my house. And you don't even look like my son right now because you've been gone for a while. So let's bring the ring and put the ring on your finger because that's a symbol of our family. I want you to know that you are my son and we're gonna celebrate together. We're gonna celebrate together because my son who was lost is now found to the one who has wandered off and can hear my voice. Maybe in this room, maybe you're hearing me online. Maybe on the outside, you look like everything is put together. Maybe you just made bad decisions, followed bad advice, had bad luck. Maybe you were just dumb. But to the one who was lost, Jesus is saying that he's looking for you. Jesus is saying that you are never so far gone that you can't take a step back home. You've never slapped God so hard in the face that you can't come back home. And he's watching for you. And all it takes is a step toward God and he runs to you. He runs to the one. He doesn't say clean yourself up and then come home. You get sober and all worked out and fixed and then you can come into the magic room. He doesn't say that. He says, just come home. Just like you are, just come home. And Jesus is speaking to us who are the found. Never stop watching for the horizon. For the day that the lost one might take a step back home again. Never stop watching the horizon. Who's the one in your life? Don't give up hope because today could be the day. Now, I'm a little bit long right now, so I'm gonna have to wrap up. Thanks for, for hanging with me here. Uh, these parables are all about how God feels about people when we are lost. These parables are actually the, the DNA. It's the DNA of who Grace Reno is. This is the DNA of your church. Grace Who's the one in your life? Jesus says, don't forget, the ones are worth taking a risk to go find. He's saying, don't forget, you've never looked into the eyes of someone who isn't an irreplaceable treasure to God. 
He's saying, don't forget, never stop watching for the day that the ones might come home. Go to the one. We are most like Jesus when we are on a rescue mission going to the one. When we are on our knees searching for the one like irreplaceable treasure. When we are watching because he loves the one. And it's not the behavior of the one that bothers him the most. It's the fact that they're lost. That's what bothers him the most. That it's worth risking to go and find the one who is the one in your life. And to the one, maybe you would say, like, I'm the one. Maybe you're listening online, and that's you. Maybe you're in another room and say, I- I'm, I'm the one. Jesus wants you to know that someone is looking for you. The great shepherd has put together a rescue mission for you. Jesus wants you to know that you are an irreplaceable treasure to God. He thinks about you with value and love. He wants you to know that you've never gone too far that you can't take a step back home again. And he's inviting you, come home. And you take a step back home and he will run to you. We see God's heart most clearly when he is on a rescue mission to the one. So grace, together, may we stand in the passion of Jesus. May we treasure the one like he does. May we get on our knees for the one like he does. And together, may we join the Father and run to the one. So for us to close, I'm gonna invite you to stand, if you would. Everybody in the room, wherever you are, stand. And close your eyes. Just go ahead and close your eyes. And I've been asking you, who is the one in your life? And I just want you to identify them. Hold them in your mind. Maybe whisper their name out loud. Maybe they're sitting right next to you and you just need to be silent. Maybe you would need to say, I'm the one. It's me. Whisper the name of the one. And in a moment, Grayson's going to sing this song that's a prayer for the one to just come home. And as you hear this prayer, listen to the Holy Spirit. What is he prompting you to do next? What is your next step? Let us go to
Bye.